Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is a roundtable discussion among members of the Association of Black Psychologists. They're going to discuss bias, racism, and psychology itself, how it all relates to this moment in United States history. Also, I asked you to provide some questions for this episode over at the You're Not So Smart Facebook page. So when that's mentioned in the discussion, that's where those questions came from. All right, here it is. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 183. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast. My name is Dr. Marva Robinson, and I'll be your host for today. I currently serve as the Midwestern Regional Representative for the Associational Black Psychologists. I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist in St. Louis, Missouri. My specialties are treating race-based trauma as well as community trauma. I have three amazing panelists joining me today, and I'll have them introduce themselves as well. First, I'll start with Dr. Kira Banks. Thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Kira Banks. I am an associate professor of psychology at St. Louis University. I also am the co-founder of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity and do consulting and uh, really do enjoy helping people think about how they can have ideas about diversity, equity, and inclusion and actually implement them and live those out. Okay, thank you. Um, next, if you'd like to introduce yourself, Dr. Satira Streeter. Yes, I am a clinical psychologist here in Washington, D.C. Uh, 16 years ago, I opened a center to serve individuals who weren't being served, African-American families who were not able to pay. Um, so we have been serving that population and, and from what we hear, serving them well. <laughs> um, for the last 16 years, we're in Southeast D.C. and there are five members of my team, and two of which are very active members of the Association of Black Psychologists. So we're so happy to, to be present for this conversation. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Sean Utzi. Greetings. Uh, again, my name is Sean Utzi. I'm a professor of psychology and chair of African American Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, my research is in the area of race-related stress. Um, I recently delved into filmmaking and have several projects uh, on the um, various topics related to 
black history and psychology of black folk. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, so I figured that I would open our discussion up by um, starting off with sharing with the listeners the um, public statement that was posted by the Association of Black Psychologists, and it's a letter to the Black community. And so I'll start off by reading that. Okay. Countless events of race-related violence and aggression that continue to plague the nation and the media significantly impacts the thoughts, behaviors, feelings, interactions, and reactions of many people. As we grieve the loss of Black family members during the COVID-19 pandemic, we share in the grief, pain, rage, and sorrow from recent murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. We understand both instances, racial health disparities and race-related brutality as two strands rooted in historical, institutional, and systemic oppression personified by Amy Cooper, a white woman who summoned the police against Christian Cooper, a bird-watching, law-abiding, unarmed Black man. The debilitating psychological effects of centuries of racial oppression cannot be underestimated. European human traffickers uprooted an estimated 15 to 50 million Africans, leaving broken bodies, spirits, and families. Centuries spent burdened by the legacies of enslavement and racism have left the Black community in distress in all areas of life. We pen this open letter to tell you what we expect and express how our people experience systems of dehumanization. To say we are frustrated would be an understatement. To say we are tired doesn't come close. However, if we must continue to show up and shout out to claim our right to breathe, we will do so. Our protest is our breath. Our protest is the collection of our of voices unheard, the fury of the invisible, and the power of the grieving. We will continue until justice is served. We are mothers, fathers, cousins, mental wellness professionals who are healing from our own traumas and experiences with racism, while we also work to offer healing to others. We are clear that George Floyd's murder was just the one that was caught on video. But our ancestors told us stories. We have our own stories and our children are learning new stories of injustice and oppression. Injustice in healthcare, housing, education, all systems are decidedly and purposely kneeling us, especially the law enforcement system. We are sick and tired of initiatives and talk. We are sick and tired of sensitivity and de-escalation training. In fact, what's needed is untraining. The people who are charged with serving our communities must be untrained from the racist and white supremacist tendencies that form the basis of American government and institutions. Angela Davis warned us, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. Black anger, frustration, rage, sorrow, helplessness, and hopelessness are our responses to these senseless acts. We cannot breathe, and we can no longer allow our humanity to be denigrated, demeaned, and destroyed. African Americans continue to experience physical and psychological violence fueled by racism and notions of white supremacy. With every highly publicized instance of a brutal police encounter, 
our senseless death at the hands of a police officer or a concerned citizen, Black people experience a type of vicarious psychological trauma. These continuous and persistent experiences of racism create a psychological enslavement, which continues to maintain systems of oppression for exploitation. The ongoing occurrences of fascism and racial trauma increases the risk of internalizing such acts that will further threaten and perpetuate the intended destruction of the Black community. Internalized racism means that we have accepted and believe in white superiority and Black inferiority, informing what we do and treat ourselves as well as one another. Internalizing these racist acts is becoming more difficult to resist and continues to affect our reactions and responses. Cultural grounding has protected us from the insidious impact of racism and internalized racism. Racial socialization is a form of cultural grounding used to protect us against the negative psychological effects of racism. Racial socialization includes helping us think strategically about how to respond when confronted with a racist situation, acknowledging and educating us about the presence and reality of these various forms of racism and preparing us for and overcoming the impact of these racist acts. It promotes relying on and cultivating cultural heritage, racial pride, self-pride, and humanistic values, and spiritual coping that will strengthen and unite Black communities. In the face of ongoing racial trauma against the Black communities, it is essential that we are intentional with our responses. It is important that we rely on our cultural beliefs, rituals, and practices. Unity, self-determination, collective work, and responsibility, cooperative economics, creativity, purpose, and faith have promoted and sustained our survival during the civil rights movement. As a people, we are here again. It's important to remember who we are, where we come from, and reach back to our history and use the strategies that our ancestors and community leaders have used to survive the various historical traumas we have experienced. So that was the open letter penned by the association to the black community. So I wanted to offer to y'all, what are your thoughts about that? And, and what have you been seeing or hearing in the circles that you're in? So one thing I'll say is I have been on the fence within the institutions that I've been in um, about whether to make a statement, right? I have been in spaces where I have positions of power um, on the side of saying, we don't need to make a statement unless we're willing to do the work internally. This police brutality that we're calling out now for some reason externally should not be something we want to holler about unless we're ready to be just as on fire about what's happening inside our own walls and how we are perpetrating violence within our own walls. And so to me, that that letter from ABCI is a beautiful letter. It, it, to me, is the type of statement, if I were in a position to make one, that I would want to make, acknowledging the history, the ways in which not only we have experienced racialized trauma and the oppression, but also calling on the fact that we are resilient people, that we are resilient people. We have resources. We um, we are strong and have the ability to, to endure, but we shouldn't have to. 
and we're tired. Um, so to me, it, it's a, it encompasses a lot of what I've been thinking and feeling. Okay, thank you. Anyone else? I really agree with the letter um, fully and, and really it, it definitely speaks to how tired um, we are as black people. We're tired, especially as um, black healers. Like we've, we've been placed here to do this work. And as I was sharing with someone the other day, it's like, as soon as I, you know, get my community to a space where they're able to, to, to breathe and, and, and process the, the traumas that they've, they've had, then something else pops up and it's a whole another thing. So the, the work is so unending, um, mostly because society continues to act out in this way and, and more specifically because white folks continue um, to not deal with their inferiority complexes and they have to continue to, to keep their knees on our necks um, so that we um, cannot be great, as young people could say. Yeah, I, I want to echo what, what everyone said so far. And I, I think for me, um, what, I've, what I've been trying to do is make sense of, of everything that's going on, most importantly, in my own psyche and, and processing uh, what I need to do to, to have a sustained impact. I think we are in a crisis now. And, and historically, when we are in a crisis, there's mobilization, uh, but not much organization. And sustainability is something that, that's often lacking. Um, typically, when our emotions subside, we go back to the status quo. And so we see lots of activities, lots of outrage. Um, there are some concessions that are being made this time by the power structure that people are, are enjoying, but I don't know if they're strategic concessions. They're just concessions. So it's good that, that ancient mom has come up the pancake box, but I think there, there are other urgent pressing issues that are life and death for black people that are not being addressed, right? So I think when we allow the, the power structure to give concessions, uh, as opposed to uh, heeding to our demands, we may not get what we need. <laughs> we may get some symbolic gestures. Um, I'm here in Richmond, so we're pulling down statues or we're, they're, they're promising to take statues down. Uh, I'm with that too. But there are some more pressing issues, right, that have to be addressed. Otherwise, the statues uh, will, not, will not really um, affect life and death issues related to health care, health disparities. Um, COVID-19 is killing black folk here in Richmond. Um, so I'm conflicted. So I want to be, because I'm always riding with black people. Whatever black people are doing, I'm down with them but I want to make sure my actions are sustained. So I'm not responding to the crises, but I'm thinking about what I can do personally and as chair of African-American studies to have a sustained impact in the community, right? To do something, not put out a statement. Um, the statements are making me sick. Uh, everyone's putting out statements. Um, everyone is at the protest live streaming. Now here in Richmond, they're at the statues that have been defaced um, and, and I've done some very nice artistic things with them. I, I really do like it. But they're, they're posting the pictures. It's not, it's not, it's time for work. 
And, and so, uh, and there's lots of work to be done. So I'm hoping this will be a call to action um, that will, will have lasting impact. Thank you. I want to follow up on something you said, right? Both you and Dr. Banks both currently work for universities. What does sustained impact look like when we're talking about how we educate students going forward? I mean, I think a big part of it is making sure they understand history, that they understand context of what is happening around them. So I developed this uh, podcast and a framework called Raising Equity, partly because I think I was tired, not I think, I was tired of having students come to my psychology of racism class and be floored that, that we had laws and, and, and we on purpose kept certain people from having an education or kept people from being citizens. They just don't know the history. And so part of what I think this is an opportunity to do is to realize that there's so much that we don't know. And when we talk about, you know, we put our kids in select sports, we put them in the most rigorous extracurricular activities, but we are not rigorous about them understanding the history of our country. And so as a black parent, I, I really do try to make sure my child knows the history of our people, but all of us need to understand the history of our country in a, in a way that doesn't just sugarcoat it, but that talks about how we have systematically disadvantaged people of color, black and indigenous people of color. And that that's not by accident that we are we are experiencing a pandemic on top of a pandemic right now that in a, many ways we shouldn't be surprised that we've set it up this way and if you don't know the history of the Dawes Act and the way in which we systematically took lands from indigenous folks or you don't you don't know the stories of Takawa Azawa and Tabat Thind about citizenship in our country or how we basically subsidized the birth of the suburbs after World War II and racialized housing in this country, and we're still navigating the effects of that now, like that means that there, there's history you don't understand that shapes your inability to understand why we are where we are today. So in my mind, when I think about my role as an educator in higher education, it's to help to create an informed citizenry so that they can make, they can make decisions based on full truths and full stories and that's why this idea of raising equity became so pressing to me, uh, because I don't think we take it seriously. We try to say colleges are this you know, bastion of liberal thinking, um, when in reality, it's often the first place where some people are, are told full stories and full histories. Yes. I, I think for me, and I, we, this is not new for, for me in my department at BCU, although I'm chair of African-American studies, my home department is in psychology, and I've been struggling and, and battling with these folks for the last 15, 16 years since I've been there. And, and the issues are not new. And, and so what I've, what I've arrived at is I don't want any training for faculty. I, I don't want any, um, you know, increased diversity, uh, clinical supervisors. I, I want some stuff. I want them to commit to admitting more black graduate students. I want them to hire more black faculty. I want them to, to have uh, the availability of, of supervisors of color for graduate students who are working in the community. I want them to be required to do internships, ex um, well, externships and other clinical rotations in the black community, not at the white clinics that are in the black city, but in the black community. 
Now, whether these students like it or not, they're going to be working with black folks, whether that was their intentions when they signed up for this program or not. Um, that's the nature of uh, public mental health. And so there should be some requirements in the training model that, that doesn't make it optional to uh, be trained to work with black folks. So I, I think I want some things that, that, that you can look at 20 years from now and say, oh, okay, that's what they did. I don't want any statements or promises. Um, I want some stuff. And I want students, graduate students, right, to have the availability to, to travel to conferences that will speak to their unique cultural needs. Um, students should have access to courses that will train them to work in their communities, right? Um, and, and typically, uh, none of that happens. Students are treated as though they should be happy to be in the program, um, and they, you know, might get a, a one-semester course on cultural diversity, and, and that's it. It's not adequate. I, you know, I agree with you, um, everything that the both of you said. One thing that stood out to me um, as being the first psychologist and also the first black psychologist who entered into Ferguson during the, the riots and the reaction to the killing of Michael Brown, most of the people I spoke to had never seen or spoken with a therapist. And it's not because they didn't see it as something that would be useful. It's because it wasn't offered. It wasn't accessible. Or they they went some obscene distance to see a clinician and the clinician was white and didn't get it. And so it became clear to me that, you know, we can't we can't have agencies saying that they're doing community work and they expect the community to come to them. So, Dr. Streeter, being someone who has a clinical facility that is in the community, what what kind of comments do you get from the people who come in for services and and from your clinicians that that work for you? All right. And I, you know, what you just said resonates so much. I never it was never my intention coming out of, of school to open a, a mental health facility like that. That was not. Um, I wanted to work somewhere and and and, and work in my community and, and and go home every night and that would be you know the the end. But um, Anacostia, D.C., which is in the southeast um, section of D.C., and unfortunately um, by design, it has been created to be kind of a, a offshoot of the city where you know at one time that's just where it was just disconnected from the city, um, and we had the highest rates of poverty of of substandard schools of, of drugs of crime just of everything was, was everything bad was in in ward eight of dc according to um you know according to the media according to, to a whole bunch of other people, right? and with that being said we came in looking for somewhere to work with our people we wanted to find a, a clinic where we could do this work and there were none because they had to, like you said, go all the way across town, which was oftentimes dangerous to have to go across town because of issues with crew and going somewhere that was unfamiliar from you, with you and, and, and unknown. And like you said, to get all the way over there and find out that the help you need wasn't going to be given. So by opening up in the community, and it's, it's interesting that oftentimes clinicians would say, well, you don't want to work in that community because what will happen mm -hmm. is they're not going to be receptive to the work. You're, you'll be out of business in, in a couple of years because Black people don't get therapy. 
And to say all this in some, what I found was Black people, um, they, they do pursue therapy, but they pursue good therapy. They pursue, mm-hmm. pursue therapy that speaks to them that um, where they don't have to explain who they are and how systematic racism has impacted them um, and what life is like. And so what we hear when people come in is we hear thank you. We hear thank you for, um, for being here. Thank you for having this space that feels like us, that smells like us, that looks like us. And that makes all of our, all the difference in the healing. So that's the reason that we're in the space that we're in and our community is grateful. And, and, and when it comes to, um, to people calling, I get at least 15 calls a day of people, black people, because that's all we serve. We only serve African-Americans, um, but I have 15 calls a day for, uh, for people seeking new therapy. So we, we need these resources and we need them in our community and we need them to be delivered by individuals who, who care and understand. Okay. Yeah. I mean, same experience here. Um, I, I would hear that a lot, you know, well, traditionally, you know, black people don't seek therapy or that's something that we don't do. And I found just the opposite. It's about the competency of the clinician and, and who they want to work with and who they choose to work with. So thank you. This has been the number one question. I'm sure you all have done multiple interviews and you've probably been asked this question before. Is it, people say now feels different, right? Watching the video of George Floyd's murder feels different and the reaction, the response seems different. And, and the question is, why now? Why, what is it about this particular moment? And I'll put that in the context of saying some of the differences I've seen is I don't recall um, when protesting, when working, when when interviewing in 2014, I don't recall any large-scale organizations saying Black Lives Matter or posting their plan to um, change their hiring practices and their policies. I don't recall um, corporations giving employees Juneteenth as a holiday. Um, so, th- so those are some things that are starting to prop up now. So does this moment now feel different? And if so, why, what do you think has attributed to it being different this time? I have a few thoughts real quickly. Um, and, and I have to realize that, that I'm, I'm, I'm old and jaded, right? But my, my cultural mistrust is deep. Uh, somehow I don't trust folk easily, right? I appreciate the the gestures that I'm seeing. Uh, I think that I'm hopeful that this will be sustained, but I suspect that that there are a few things that came together at this time to make different. COVID-19 had all of us at home, frustrated, cooped up in the house. Ain't got to go to work tomorrow. Ain't got you know real no 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 football on. We just home frustrated, um, and so I think. That lends itself to the the angst uh, that people are feeling. Um, I think that that the the video, because because white folks have seen videos before. We saw Rodney King, right? We 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 saw uh, uh, Ahmaud Arbery. We you know we've seen videos that were indisputable, right? So I think a few things came together at this time 
to cause this reaction. Um, I do think that that there are probably, you know, it's like when you're a kid and, and you're on the playground and you're trying somebody because you don't think they're serious. And when you discover they're serious, the reaction is different, right? I was just playing with you, right, is what you're saying. And this is what I'm feeling now, that, that black folks have kind of finally said, no, we serious. And I think society is saying, you're serious, huh? And I think that, that, that but I'm not convinced that these gestures are, are going to be meaningful or sustainable or are what we need. But I, I, I do think that it's important Right. From time to time that that the envelope is pushed, the field goes moved, um, the bars raised. And after another 30 years, we'll have to go through this again to get the bar raised higher. Right. Uh, you know, we got where we are now by these kinds of uh, blow ups or, or combustions. And that resulted in legis legislation or, or, or you know, anti-lynching law or, you know, the Civil Rights Act. Um, this is what happens. It's a cycle. If we look historically at it, it's a cycle. It is. It is a cycle. And part of me worries because there's an opportunity because we are so interested in, in symbolic change in our country that there's an opportunity for the current administration to come out with some what looks like really great civil rights legislation and not do deep systems change. Uh, what what feels slightly different for me, so in 2014, I was also in St. Louis in the epicenter of everything in the Ferguson uprising. And as a part of the Ferguson Commission, we worked really hard. I was a consultant for, with the commission and stayed on after to try to create a foundation of a common language around what is racism, what is racial equity, to help people understand that diversity is not equity. Diversity work is not equity work. And to understand those distinctions. And what I, ha what I do think is different in St. Louis and, and maybe beyond is that when things blew up this time, there was a cadre of people who were using the right language from, early, from the beginning. They were able to call it systemic racism, that there wasn't a hemming and a hawing. There were even some people who were talking squarely about white supremacy and that they were able to name what's happening. And I think there's power in naming it, not tiptoeing around it. It's not a racially charged event. Right, like to name racism and white supremacy and the degradation of the black body and anti-blackness and all of that, to call it for what it is. I feel like that happened in a more mainstream way than I had seen in the past. And I I I I hope that what's happening now is there are more people who are developing the language to name what's happening so that the next time things blow up, there's fewer people in shock and awe and without the language. Yeah, I, I, I worry, similar to um, what Dr. Sean said, you know, I think, you know, even before my time, I think about Emmett Till and how his open casket, you know, caused outrage and people got a little bit more upset. And then I think about when Dr. King was assassinated and people got a little bit more upset and like some things, some minor things changed, but what is it really going to take for it to go all the way over you know, in terms of the, the, the significant change. And then I, um, for some reason on my Facebook settings, I guess I did it, but the White House, when they have live briefings, they pop up on my phone. And, you know, just scrolling through those comments though, 
lets me know that not that much is changing. And even if I'm just bombarded in that moment, but you know, when these people are like, oh, he's so awesome. What, this is the best president ever. And I'm like, are, you, are they, are they serious? Um, and, and is, is he, there's a whole group of folks that really, really believe and feel completely justified in where they are right now. And they're thinking about race and they're thinking about, about superiority. And, and that makes me nervous to know that all of this could be going on. And there's a, a significant portion of the country just looking at all this, waiting for it to pass so they can get back to, to normal. That's what I was reminded of when people, I was telling somebody today, I was interviewing Channel 8, I think, and, and I was telling them that, that we thought when Obama was elected that this was a new time, this is a new day. I never thought, people said, I never thought in my life I would live to see a black president. Can this be real? Have we moved beyond that past, right? And we later discovered where we really were, <laughs> right? I, I'm concerned that, that we are going to interpret what's happening with these huge white crowds of protesters and looters, white looters too, right? That, that somehow we're going to see that, wow, look, they, they joined us in our struggle. We are at a different place as a country. Uh, I, I've, you know what I'm saying? I, like George Bush said, fool me once, shame on you. Can't get fooled again. Nah, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but you bring up a good point that there's all, progress has always been followed by a period of retrenchment, right? Like, so after, during the reconstruction, we had more black senators than we have had since the reconstruction. Right. And then we had Jim Crow. And right all sorts of other ways in which there was backlash. And I feel right. like that's where we are right now. That's right. And understanding ecology of that phenomena are describing, I think is essential here because it's happening again. But in the moment we see progress, but you're right, there will be backlash. I just hope that we can find some levers to, to, to use some of that energy or progress. Like I want us to be creative about how we build. So I've been doing a lot of um, work around gener like generative somatics and somatics work. If anyone knows Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy, she talks about, well, she talks about lots of things, but one of the things that I get from her work is she talks about how everything is, that is local is global. And that as we are fighting systems of oppression, we also need to be thinking about ways to be in community with each other. And this is not new ideas necessarily, but have to be able to build and vision is, is a different set of skills than to be able to tear down and dismantle. And that I'm, I'm hopeful some days today, this hour, that <laughs> we can leverage some of the energy to to do that visioning about what can be and, and to build so that we can, I don't know, elongate maybe some of that energy. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can have sustained change. And you see me going up with the question mark in my voice because I'm not convinced, but here we are in this exercise of trying to dismantle and build at the same time. It's not easy. This show is sponsored by 
BetterHelp. And I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, 
and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. Okay, so um, I do want to take uh, one question from um, some of the questions that were sent in and see what you all have to say about this. So um, someone was asking if if we could touch on or explain a little bit more about what implicit bias is. Yeah, so I can I can start and others can jump in. So implicit bias is is when you have a, a preference that is rigid and sometimes sometimes unnoticed um, that shapes your thinking. And I, and I hesitated there because oftentimes people talk about it as always being a negative so that having an implicit bias against a group. But we actually know from research that the implicit bias that we have for people that are like us, for people in our groups, is actually super strong, is very strong, and is more pernicious and dangerous than the bias we have against. So it, it might explain some of the disparities that we see in healthcare. So one of the disparities that we see is that um, black people's pain is minimized, that people are, doctor, physicians are assuming that they, that they have a higher threshold for pain, and that we also see there might be more tests run for white patients to figure out what's going on. And so some of that could be, okay, there might be a bias against Black people, people assuming that they're help-seeking and drug-seeking. But there's also a bias for going on, because it might be that that physician who is disproportionately white, you know, if your, if your grandpa came in or grandma came in, you would do anything to figure out what's going on with grandma or grandpa. You see people that you care about in this patient, in a white patient, and if you see this patient and you don't see their full humanity and you have biases and assumptions against them, that that has you act in one way, right? But we often don't talk about the bias that happens when you see someone who you see yourself in or who you connect with because they look like someone in your family or they feel like someone in your family. So I just want to name that implicit bias. It's those snap judgments that happen in a, in a, in a very quick time frame that with work, we can be aware of and we can manage. So I know someone asked about the implicit association test. There's a lot of research on that test. You can Google Harvard implicit and um, you can get a sense of like where your biases 
fall, newsflash, we all have biases. So don't expect to have to be free of them. Right. But to also know there's research to show how you can you can de-bias yourself. So not fully, but how you can manage those biases so that in the moment you can create some space to have a reaction, but not behave in accordance with that reaction. Because our our implicit and explicit attitudes don't always match up. And so it's important for people to understand that if you took the IAT and it said you had a bias for a group, that doesn't mean all is lost. That means you're, you need to work on that and develop some awareness so that when you have that reaction, you then also have that moment to choose different behavior. Yeah. And you, you just touched on something else that was something because implicit bias and understanding it came up quite a bit. And someone did reference um, the study, the Harvard implicit bias study. So um, did, did anyone else want to add anything about um, breaking down what implicit bias is, what it means? Can I have have you thing? taken um, the Harvard implicit bias studies? Any of you have? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what were your thoughts? I mean, my, I want to just add that it's important to understand sometimes people talk about bias and you say everyone's got it and they do. And so you can't say you don't have a prejudice bone in your body. You do. But I also think it's important. It's not like that movie Crash where it's like, oh, all of our biases are bumping into each other. No, no, no. Some of our biases have power and institutions behind them. <laughs> and it's really important to, to, to remember that, that, you know, I work at a Jesuit institution. And so there's a lot of power in the religion of our institution. And so to say that, that someone who's Muslim in the school might have a bias, okay, but they don't have a whole institution backing them up. So that we have to think about implicit bias in the context of power. Yeah. If I can just jump in here real quick, because I've always struggled with um, language and how language can soften uh, some phenomena that that requires language to kind of let you know how deadly it is. And and I think bias is, is such an example. I don't know if I would describe what's going on with folks sometimes as bias. Um, it's a place that that's almost evolutionary in terms of how deep seated it is. Certainly unconscious and 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 very uh, primitive, right? And so when 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 I see the the uh, um the officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck, I don't see bias. You know what I'm saying? I don't see bias. I see a a a, a racial animus that comes from somewhere dark that I have no idea uh, what could, you know, something like that, right? So I appreciate the science behind implicit bias. It's interesting. I'm a, you know, I'm a curious person and I love psychology and things like that fascinate me. But some of this stuff, we need new language to describe what's going on because language alerts us sometimes to how serious or something, you know, something can be. And 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 I don't know if um implicit bias is what we're experiencing now. This is is beyond that. Agreed. Definitely agreed. So if we were to look at um I would agree it it's 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 not a simple bias. I think what we all witnessed, especially for those who saw the video, what wasn't about, you know, a a, a bias in the moment. That was pure hatred. 
in my opinion. So um, I think this particular question was coming from like, if you're at work and there's something subtle, but you kind of question it, but you're not sure. How do you know the difference between if it's a healthy paranoia or if it's bias on the other person's part? Um, I think anyone who's working in organizations where your coworkers don't all aren't all black or all look like you, there are several times at the end of the day you're kind of questioning what really just happened. Am am I am I reading too much into it or am I not? Um, and so being in clinical as well as being in academia, um, how do you all kind of balance between what you know to be, okay, this is this other person's issues or not bias, but racism versus sometimes questioning if you may be reading too much into something? I, I will start. I um, I am fortunate that, that everyone in my office looks um, like, like me, but the unfortunate piece is the clients that I serve don't have that luxury. So they have to ask that very question and try to figure out where, where they stand in the workplace, where they stand um, in those other spaces where they're in mixed company. And what I, what I do with it is just have them to process. Like most likely if your, your gut is telling you that you're seeing racism and you're seeing this bias, that you are not wrong. Um, the question just becomes, how do you strategically deal with it? But I um, try to get clients out of, of double guessing themselves because we have a long enough history um, with folks in this country to know that, yeah, what we're feeling is, is probably pretty accurate. Um, but the question becomes, what do we do with it? Agreed. Agreed. Anyone else want to kind of weigh in on that? Is that something that this double guessing yourself, something that comes up? Yeah, I, I I struggle with the question um, because it reminds me of my privilege and that I can entertain those kind of questions, right? When 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 what we're talking about in many instances is life and death now, right? The stakes have been raised, and my discomfort at work because some white folks said something that I expect them to say, right? <laughs> uh, seems like a luxury that everyone doesn't have. The fact that, that, that my, the microaggressions I experience are in the context of a well-paying job with good benefits seems to also speak to my privilege. And, and so, but on a very personal level, um, I, I've, I think I've lowered my expectations of people, right? So I'm not surprised by what they say what they do. Um, I insulate myself by being in AFAM studies. I don't want to be in psychology anymore, right? I wish I was back at Howard, <laughs> truth be told. But since I can't be back at Howard, I'm in AFAM studies. And, and, and this is how I try to find my sanity uh, in this context. But I don't feel, I, I feel a little, little uh, remiss complaining about my privileged experiences with with racism from other privileged people. You you brought up a good point because a lot of a lot of the questions in in the podcast usually looks at a lot of research. What do the studies say? What does the science say? 
And I'm always reminded of a, a speech I heard some years back that said, well, first of all, you have to look at the whole institution behind what research does and what it is. Who are usually the participants in the study? Which studies are being funded? And so the whole process of saying research or follow the science in and of itself often has an institutional racist undertone. Um, so when you say you don't even want to be in psychology anymore, um, does that play a part when we look at, you know, how studies are brought about or used to, to make um, statements about behaviors or explain things away, or is it just... No, this is a very good question. It probably speaks to my own uh, career and life development, right? And, and uh, I, I used to love psychology. Um, I was successful at it. I, I was good at it. I, I enjoyed I was curious, inquisitive. And, and research, I thought, asked relevant questions. But I, I've come to see that even my questions around research uh, are, are oftentimes asking what's wrong with black people, right? Uh, and, and we know that the question we ask determines the finding in our studies. And, and, and I'm no longer interested in that. I want to transform black people. I want to, to, to tell a story, right? This is why my filmmaking is my new passion. I want to tell a story and I want you to, to enjoy the story that I you in ways that move you, right? And shape and change your behavior. And so I, I, I found a new passion. Psychology doesn't do it for me anymore. Um, there are two things that I've been turned off by is the, the jumping through hoops. In psychology, we chase money. We used to chase publications. That wasn't anymore. Then we had to chase money. I had colleagues whose research changed because there was no money in that. So they began doing tobacco research or they began doing substance abuse research. Um, I can't chase me, right? And so I'm going to be evaluated poorly every time, even though uh, I'm probably, you know, in three most cited in my department, I'm not into that, right? I'm not trying to compete with them for grant money and publications. I think that at this stage in my life, I'm thinking about impact. Is anything I'm doing having an impact on anybody, right? And I can't ask that question in psychology. They don't care about that, right? Uh, but in AFAM studies, I can ask myself, and is what I'm doing, right, having an impact on Black people's lives in a real way? So for me, and this is anybody who is in psychology playing that game. I was there. I played that game. Right now, where I'm at in my life, uh, I'm in a different mode. Dr. Banks, I wanted to ask you about the same question because I know you also um, publish quite a bit. And so you had a chance to look over some of the questions and there's always this wonder about what does the science or what do the publications say about racism or bias or things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, back to your back to your specific question, we do know that ambiguous stimuli are most distressing. So that whole second guessing yourself, is this, what is this, is this racism, is this not, is it's stressful psychologically and physiologically. We see the effects of chronic stress, racism as a chronic stressor. So above and beyond other stressors impacting people's physical and mental health. We now have research that shows it, racism impacts, impacts telomere length, which impacts you know, your longevity. 
it's most likely a contributing factor to why we see many Black Americans disproportionately impacted by things like diabetes and hypertension. Um, and so the research says racism harms, harms people psychologically and emotionally. But where I think Dr. Uzi is so right is that too often we only tell the negative narrative and we don't shine light on the fact that there are moderators or mediators, there are underlying mechanisms, there, there are people for whom they experience discrimination and they're not depressed or anxious. And so my research has been really focused on trying to understand those underlying mechanisms so we can understand what it, it of course, we'd love to dismantle racism. That would be the easiest thing. But in the meantime, how do we how do we cultivate variables and experiences within people, either in their psychology or in their environment that can buffer them from the ne negative effects? Or what is it about their approach that allows them to not have the negative effects? We know things about like racial socialization and how parents prepare their children for the world can can buffer them and protect them from the negative effects. So the research does say a lot, but the thing is, we had to tell you that racism impacted mental and physical health for about, mm, what, 30 years before it was really believed and established in the literature. And consistently, there are gaps in our research because so often people are pulling from samples of Black folks that are disproportionately from lower SES. And yes, disproportionately, we see a lot of Black people represented, but like that means we don't know a lot about middle-class Black folks and affluent Black folks. And so there are stories that we don't get told because our research is, is biased in who is a convenient sample, where we're accessing who the, who the researcher has a relationship with to recruit participants. Um, and so I, I do think it's important to understand that as much as people want to understand the science, that the questions that a researcher asks how they ask them, how they interpret their data, it's all shaped. It's all shaped by the, the researcher and their approach. And so I think it's important to, to just name that um, because it's not as simple as saying, well, this is the science. You have to ask the question, who shaped the question? Who interpreted the data? What perspective are they coming from? And too often it's a, it's a deficit narrative about Black folks. Thank you. Speaking of a de deficit narrative, um, Dr. Streeter, one thing that um, often comes up when you're working in a clinical setting is, is the approach you're using evidence-based, right? Is, is this something that has been, uh, it is accepted widely by those. When you're providing clinical work, say with someone who is dealing with um, race-based stress and trauma, what are your thoughts about this notion of, of using techniques that have been evidence-based in research? Right. So I, you know, I think it's necessary for me, of course, to, to know those techniques. Um, but what's more important is I, I operate on spirit. I operate in understanding what my client needs in the moment. Um, I operate differently. And I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm privileged not to have someone breathing over my shoulder saying, oh, you need to do this and document it this way. Um, but we, a lot of the work we do is just based on what the client needs in the moment. And, you know, that client might need someone to sit next to them um, while they just cry. So we can, you know, so they can, I could just let them feel what they feel. I might need to create a safe space just to, um, for, for people to just be, you know, I was asked, um, 
earlier today too, because of there are some Black Lives Matters um, protests going on in, in the city this weekend, I was asked just to, to open up to provide a safe space and a safe haven. And, and that's the type of work that we do. And that's not necessarily evidence-based, but it's based on the fact that folks come back and say that they feel better and they're they're able to process things differently um, having had the experience. So that's my thought. Great. Can I tell so, you? Yeah, please do. Because I, I think <clears throat> evidence-based is kind of this new cliche, this new language we're using now in graduate training, especially, uh, and certainly in clinical practice, uh, to, to justify uh, billing uh, practices. And, and so I, I think we have to be clear about what we're doing. And I read this book in grad school called House of Cards, Psychology and Psychotherapy Built on Myth. And this book was like, I don't know where my professor got it from, but this was the this was the best thing I could have read going into the discipline. Because I had ideas and beliefs about psychology and the mystery and the you know the, the, the power and magic that we can perform and only we can perform, right? With our training. And a lot of this is really part of our our guild, our our occupational uh, lobby that makes what we do. Uh, valuable, right? So this idea of empirical-based um, therapy or, you know, it's just a way for people to kind of justify, you know, building practices. I know uh, my struggle as a clinician when I was on an internship, I remember a young lady coming to me talking about some of her classmates, knew she was coming into class because she always comes in like five minutes late. So they wrote nigga on the board. Right. And she came to me. She was distressed. I didn't feel comfortable working with her feelings and, and helping her to kind of, you know, work through her issues and, 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 and process what had happened. And I was pissed off. <laughs> so I was like, we're going to see the professor tomorrow to ask him why he allows. This to happen. Right. Now, I wasn't trained to do that. That's not what my training says. My training says I should reflect. And, 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 you know, and perhaps come up with some psychoeducation to help her create some strategies that will allow her to negotiate. No, uh, some things don't feel good to me. Right. And helping black people live with racism doesn't feel good to me. But that's what we're trained to do. That's our training. And, and so and then we have to live because this is our, our occupation. And so we have the games that they make us play, right? And our people who come to us for help, they've also been socialized in this system, uh, you know, uh, of, of this, this game, this gaming system, if you will. And they expect certain things, right? And so it's going to be difficult, but we have to begin to change the language. We have to begin in the graduate school socialization process to let these new trainees know, right? that there are alternative ways of seeing the world, right? You must learn this to pass your licensure exam. But when you get out there in the real world, you'll see that this perhaps is more effective, right? So I think we have to do that. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's, it's sick. I'm telling you, this graduate process, it's like, it's like pledging, right? <laughs> and you're never the same again. But hopefully you haven't, you haven't lost your mind completely. So you're speaking the truth. 
And I think it's interesting to me. I don't know about the programs that you all went through or you experienced, but I learned about, I feel like at least I learned about like the philosophy of science, epistemology, like that there are different ways of knowing. And what I realized is when I came to the institution where I currently am, graduate students get none of that. So they don't even have a lens through which to critique this, this thinking that they're being indoctrinated into. And so I had to figure out a way to incorporate it into the one diversity class that I teach, right? I was like, you have to know that there are different ways of knowing and that there are different ways of doing science than this one way that you have been taught. And so that's another thing I would, if listeners are, are interested in what the science says, right? Like that, that there's different ways of knowing. There are different, there's different methodologies of science and that those are valid as well. Yeah, you, it, it, should, it should be about the art of critical thinking, not being able to regurgitate what you've been told or what you've been asked to read. Um, makes perfect sense. So I wanted to make sure um, I rounded off by asking each of you, right? Given what you see now and given what you feel is needed, right? What would you need to see done or changed, um, whether that's if, if that's legislation or not, but what action would you need to see to feel like there is real change on the horizon? What does that look like for you? I guess being being the mother of two boys and, and being, you know, super active in their in their southeast DC school. I would need to see more done with education. Um, Dr. UC talked about earlier, you know, letting more black graduate students in, but I would need to see more funding for um, kids to go to whatever school they want to go to on whichever level um, in college. I would want to see um, more access. I would want to see more resources so that um, at least our children could have the opportunities that just have, have been denied for, for so long and, and that the work is being put into education so that it's not just the run of the mill, um, praise George Washington, you know, America's great type thing, but for them to really um, get something real and something that they can use and something that's going to to both build their, who they are and then build their, their access to, to opportunities. I feel like what I would want to see is captured in um, a piece that I just wrote for the Harvard Business Review last week and that I didn't think that they would accept. I thought they would want to water down, but I basically said that corporate brutality is the same, the same police brutality that we're calling out. We need to be also naming the corporate brutality that happens within corporations and that they need to reckon with the black experience inside their walls. And I thought, they're not going to go for that. <laughs> I'm just going to say this, but they're not going to go. But they went for it. And so I, I realized that that's what I would want to see. I want to see real reckoning across all institutions with the black experience because all that brutality that you swear is unacceptable, it's happening inside your institutions, inside education. I also have two boys inside, inside all sorts of spaces. And so I want to see that learning out loud, the learning in public of institutions and organizations reckoning and, and growing and moving towards equity. I, I would want to see that. 
just like they want to model and have it be trendy to have statements. I want them to model and have it be trendy about them airing their dirty laundry, acknowledging their harm and changing systems and incentives so that that harm discontinues. And I also I'll believe it when those sorts of changes happen and they change systems so that the brutality stops. Well, I, I think for me, what, what I like to see has nothing to do with white folks. Um, but I like to see the change happen in the minds and the hearts of black people, right? How we see ourselves, we see each other, how we treat ourselves and how we treat each other. Uh, I think that that this revolution, that, that all desire happened within first, right? No matter what kind of concessions we get, if we don't have our minds right, they're not be meaningful or, or we're not going to them in the appropriate way to sustain any liberation. So I think I, I want to see black people begin to love themselves, to be interested in their history, uh, be interested in, in, in pr promoting right their own cultural uh, sensibilities, not having to to assimilate, right? To 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 equate assimilation with success. Um, when I begin to see HBCUs uh, embrace their own cultural models of, of excellence, right? And then train students in that model, then I think we are on the path. But but we're never, anything that involves the approval of white folks, I don't really uh, see any, any uh, value in that. Um, anything that requires or ask them to give us something, I don't see any value in that either because they can take it back. We've seen them take the voting rights Act right back, right, right. They gave the voters, they gave us our voting rights, and took some back. <laughs> so I think that the the real change has to happen within. I know it sounds clichéish, but it's true. It has to happen within. You can't take that back because you didn't give it, right? And from that, we begin to see real change. And I always give my students this example of how when you define your own reality and get others to buy into it, that's where the most power is, right? And as you all know of identity changes from being Negro to colored to black to Afro-American to African-American, so forth and so on, right? We struggle with our names. Even black folks have made fun uh, of Keisha and Brandisha, and, and, and we, we ridiculed our own efforts to promote our cultural sensibilities because we're not comfortable with these. We would prefer, uh, 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 you know, you know middle-class white names. Um, because we know that those names uh, don't carry the risk of culturally sounding names. But if we reject that premise and named our children what we wanted to name them, right? At some point, this idea that those names don't imbue excellence would be shattered, right? So, so when we said, right now, we're going to be African-Americans, right? And all of us have seen white folks struggle to say, African-Americans, right? They don't really want, to, they prefer to say black or something else, but they, they, they know that the demand says we have identified who we are and we expect you to re respond to us as such. And they do. We could use that same model with other things. By demanding that others acknowledge or respect us in this way, if we all do that, they will. But I think the change happens within. Okay.
I think if I had to answer that same question for me, um, I don't know that there's real sustained or real substantial change when health disparities no longer exist. Um, when those no longer exist and poverty can be totally wiped out. Um, because in order for those two things to happen, there has to be a change in how institutions are built and run. So that would be me chiming in. So before we wrap it up, is there any um, last comment or statement or um, anything you would like to leave those listening with? I would just say white folks do better, please. And, and black folks, we have to we have to love and cherish ourselves and know that we all have a role to play in this revolution. And it could be something small. Um, that, that can have a big impact or it could be the the protesting and speaking and writing and, and all of that. There's a whole gamut of things that we need to do, um, but all of us have a role to play. Okay. Any final I thoughts? Would, I would say lean into the tough questions, um, find your lane and find your community. Uh, one of the things I've been talking a lot to my kids, you know, being at home in COVID and one of my children was like, but you know, mom, what do you think about the looting? What do you think about the looting? And I, and we talk about just how people are angry and people are upset. And we talked about how some are, are white folks who are coming to infiltrate and loot. But I also said, you know, what was going on? What was the Boston Tea Party? What'd you learn about? I was like, what was that? They were upset. Right. Mm -hmm. And what do they do? Was that their tea? Right. <laughs> like that, that, that there's insurance on that tea. There's insurance on that target. Um, but I, I, and I'm not, and I told them, I was like, we're not saying you should go out and loot, but we're saying we understand that people are fed up and they have every right to be angry and those corporations will be okay. And so I want people to lean into the tough questions and I want you to find your lane and how you can contribute to this broader movement because you know, we, we know that the systems that are set up and they're working just the way they were supposed to, but there seems to be a collective moment. I don't know how long it'll last where we are seeing clearly that it's not okay. And so I want folks to lean into the tough questions and hold on to that. Um, because we can it, only, if we work collectively, create something more equitable. Any last comments you'd like to leave the listeners with, Dr. Yussi? Wow. Um, I, I think now is the time for critical reflection, self-reflection. I think we have to ask ourselves uh, who we are and are we all tend to be. And, and, and I think we need to begin that search from within, right? We need to commit to something in the community that we can do. Um, I think it's, we're always going to be pushing back against those systems that, that kind of uh, stunt our growth. And that's part of the game. But we can't be distracted by um, our own growth and development, right? And I think that that's going to be important. For example, I'm hoping, and I will, I'm, I'm hoping to start an academic immersion program with one of the local high schools. Uh, we want a lot of, and a lot of times, getting to college is not difficult. Graduating with your mind <laughs> intact is the challenge. 
So we want to make sure these students are equipped, not only to get to college, but to get through college and not be crazy. So there are things that, that, that we all can do, right? That will be in it for the long game. Um, we'll always have crises, but we shouldn't be distracted by these distractions. Yeah. Again, I want to thank you three for taking the time out of your schedule to join me today to have this conversation. Um, hopefully, well, I know that someone who um, has listened will will pick something up and and do the work um, in their respected lanes. So thank you all again um, for joining me and uh, I'll talk to you all soon. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. Of course. Hey, everyone. Good, Good to chat with y'all. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes, you also can go to youarenotsosmart.com or iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud. And also now, Spotify. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music right here is by Professor Tikoff. If you would like to follow the show on social media, it is at Facebook at slash you are not so smart. Also on Twitter at not smart blog. I am at David McCraney and you can support the show by going to Patreon. You can pitch in at any amount and get the show ad free or at higher amounts than that. Slightly higher You can get signed t-shirts, signed books, posters, all sorts of cool stuff. That's patreon.com slash you are not so smart. All right, coming up next episode, all new stuff. We're going to talk about cults. That's right. I'm going to talk with the world's leading expert on cults. We're going to talk about how people enter them, how people exit them, what goes inside them, and why no one, you included, is impervious, is immune to the power of cult psychology. That's next on the You're Not So Smart podcast. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.